Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. I'm super excited today for many reasons, but one of them is this is our first two-part story. So I hope you enjoy the show, but before we start, a quick word from today's sponsor, Harry's. As regular listeners will know, I use Harry's myself, and like my delicate personality, my skin is also sensitive. And Harry's, it's great for sensitive skin. And now you can get a Harry's shaving set worth £11.50 delivered to your door for just £2.95, which just covers the cost of postage and packing. Just head to harrys.com forward slash true crime. And you know, for me, it's not even just about the great shave. As you probably know, I'm not so good at being told what to do and following the rules. Well, it's not really my thing. The founders at Harry's share that philosophy. Andy and Jeff were, well, they were fed up with being overcharged for razors. And that's why they started the company. So get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £2.95. Support this podcast and get the set delivered to your door, including a razor handle, a five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash true crime. That's harrys.com forward slash true crime. So on with today's episode. Firstly, I would like to say a huge thank you to this week's Patreon supporters. That's Dan Prince, Zoe Burtwistle and Carolyn Loyal. I really appreciate your support and also the continued support of all my Patreons who helped me so much with their thoughts and advice. I'm delighted that this week's episode, well, and next week's episode as well, has been written by a friend of the show, The True Crime Enthusiast. Please check out his fantastic site at truecrimeenthusiast.wordpress.com. Some really great stories and some cases that he's covered on his website. But as well as that, I think he's got a podcast coming soon, so keep an eye out for that and I will certainly be subscribing. On the subject of UK true crime podcasts, I also strongly recommend a relatively new one hosted by criminologist Professor Elizabeth Yardley called Crime Bites. Take a listen, I love it. For today's case, we go right back to 1967. The UK music charts were topped by the Bee Gees with Massachusetts, with other notable songs in the charts for me being at number 28, Shirley Bassey with Big Spender. Now who doesn't remember that? In the US, in a year that three months earlier had seen the Beatles top the charts with All You Need Is Love, not always the song that all podcast reviewers identify with, the number one spot was taken by Lulu with To Sir With Love. So what was making the news this month? Cool Han Luke starring Paul Newman premiered, the Hither Green Rail crash in the UK killed 49 people, and talking about the Bee Gees, the survivors included B.G. Robin Gibb. Carl B. Stokes was elected the first black mayor of a major U.S. city, a Cleveland, Ohio, and the first local British radio station began broadcasting, Radio Leicester. In the Vietnam War, which was ongoing at the time, American General William Westmoreland told the news reporters, I'm absolutely certain that whereas in 1965 the enemy was winning, today he is certainly losing. And the BBC unofficially banned I'm the Walrus by the Beatles. What a bizarre decision that was. And the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen declared independence from the UK. 
Broadmoor, Ashworth and Rampton are all familiar names, not just to a student of true crime, but for anyone who picks up a newspaper or reads an online report. Some of the UK's most infamous criminals who've committed some of the very worst crimes are contained within the walls and fences of the big three secure hospitals that cover England and Wales. For example, you can find the Yorkshire Ripper, the Hull arsonist Bruce Lee and killer nurse Beverly Allett. For Scotland and Northern Ireland, however, the main psychiatric care facility is the state hospital located near the village of Carstairs in South Lanarkshire, more commonly known as Carstairs Hospital. It provides care and treatment for patients requiring high security hospital detention, with around 700 staff accommodating about 140 patients. A new security wing is being built at the site now at a cost of 60 million, and as with other secure hospitals, it still has a deafening alarm system that is based on a World War II air raid siren. Have you ever heard it? Should a patient escape, there's this deafening two-tone alarm that reaches as far as neighbouring villages and towns. On the third Thursday of each month, the alarm and the all-clear siren is tested, and locals living nearby have become accustomed to the three 30-second blasts that signal the all-clear. This need for a warning system stems from actions more than 40 years ago from one of the most infamous patients to have resided at Carstairs Hospital, Robert Francis Moan. The name Moan is known throughout Scottish criminal history. It will forever be connected with eight brutal and bloody deaths, an astonishing escape from a high-secure unit and a macabre case of one-upmanship between a father and son. Robert Francis Moan Jr. was born in Dundee on the east coast of Scotland in June 1948. Dundee is now the fourth biggest city in Scotland, lying around 36 miles northeast of Edinburgh. With a large student population, Dundee has reinvented itself from its historic reliance on the jute industry and is now a bustling, vibrant city that made the shortlist for the UK City of Culture in 2017. You also may recall it was the location of one of the worst rail disasters in British history, the Tay Bridge disaster. The first Tay Rail Bridge was opened in 1878, but it collapsed some 18 months later during a storm as a passenger train passed over it, resulting in the loss of 75 lives. A child of above average intelligence, Moan was a lonely introvert who didn't find it easy to make friends. And as a result, he found all social interaction and building relationships awkward. He had a few girlfriends for adolescence, but none of those relationships lasted more than a few weeks. His family life didn't help him. His mother deserted the family when Robert was very young, and he was regularly beaten by his drunken and bullying father, Robert Sonny Moan Sr. And also from the age of 12, he was sexually abused by a middle-aged neighbour, You know, when I read this, it just makes me shake my head. How often in this podcast have we heard similar stories of such shocking abuse? Moan's schooling record was appalling, as despite his clear intelligence, he massively underachieved. I guess that with what was happening away from school, this is hardly surprising. At St John's Secondary School, which he attended for three years from 1959, he was assessed as virtually unteachable with one teacher going so far as to say it was like having a live hand grenade in the classroom. 
For his part, Moan hated the school and he was eventually expelled in 1962. A period spent in an approved school in London followed, after which Moan led an increasingly chaotic life, before he decided to have one last attempt to put some structure into his life, and he enlisted in the army at the age of 18. Moan joined the Gordon Highlanders, and he was soon posted to Germany with his unit. Whilst in Germany, Moan began to drink heavily, as was the culture within the armed services at the time. By his own account, he was also ostracised by the rest of his unit when he was asked to sign statements that resulted in the court-martial and discharge of two soldiers of superior rank. Although aware of the repercussions of doing this, he agreed to do it, believing that he was actually doing the right thing. As a result, he was shunned by the rest of his unit in distrust, and on more than one occasion, threatened with physical violence. Oh, imagine that, when you're in a strange place, all these strange people, and you're being threatened for doing what you think is the right thing. It's known that at this time, Moan filled in an application to be able to carry a personal firearm, as was a serviceman's right at the time. But he discontinued this application when he found out that any weapon would have to be kept in armoury under lock and key. Moan claimed that this was for his own protection, but I think it's fair to say that subsequent events were cast out on this. When the unit was sent to Libya in late October 1967, Moan was told that instead of staying with them, he was being returned to the UK to undergo further training before attachment to a different unit. Angry at the way he perceived he'd been treated and let down by the army, by the time he arrived back in London, Moan had no intentions of returning to the army. Upon arrival, he made a beeline for a gunsmith's in London's West End, where he bought a single-barreled 12-gauge Spanish-made shotgun, and then he went AWOL. Moan turned up back in Dundee in the last week of October, where he descended into a cycle of heavy drinking, often having a bottle of vodka at breakfast time, which, I guess nowadays, could even make loose women just about watchable. Well, maybe. These were the days before pubs opened all day and alcohol couldn't be bought 24-7. Remember those days? Moan's time would be spent between visiting cinemas and cafes while he was waiting for the pubs to open. He spent some of the time staying at his grandma's house when, after a furious drunken row with his abusive dad, in which Moan Jr. threatened his dad at gunpoint, this caused him to leave his parents' home. After that, his time was spent sleeping rough. Moan had visited several doctor surgeries throughout Dundee that week claiming that he was suffering from severe depression. As a result, he managed to get hold of a substantial quality of prescription medication, mostly painkillers. When we look at this information today, it was clear that Moan was unwell and needed help. But then in reality, have we really moved much further forward in our treatment of mental health today? I'm not so sure. On Halloween 1967, Moan checked into the former Mathers Hotel in Dundee's Whitehall Crescent. And after spending a while drinking alone in his small room, he decided to attempt suicide. Instead, he ended up just making himself violently ill. The attempt on his life bungled. Moan carried on with his spiral of heavy drinking, brooding and getting angrier. By the next morning, the 1st of November, Moan had recovered enough to find himself in Dundee's White Horse Inn on Harefield Road, opposite St John's Secondary School, the place where Moan had been expelled from only a few years before, 
and the place that he hated because of the disciplinarians he perceived were there. According to Moan, he came to the decision that afternoon to get a taxi back to the hotel, gather his things and return to the army to face whatever punishments may be coming his way. He stepped out of the pub on that cold, miserable afternoon and then got soaked to the skin in the rain looking around for a taxi. There was no Uber back then. It was at this moment that he stopped and stared at the lights of his school opposite. His rage built inside him when he thought of how much he hated the place and how he'd been so unhappy there. And coupled with his bitterness at how he perceived the army had treated him, the alcohol he'd been drinking and his ever-present illness, his anger and depression, meant that Moan was a short fuse. No taxi was to be found. This was the trigger to him exploding. Moan dejectedly walked back to the Mathers Hotel and returned to St John's School a short time later, dressed in his Gordon Highlanders private uniform. He also carried with him his shotgun. Moan suddenly ran across the road and burst into the school, not knowing where he was going, but making his way to the top floor of an annex. The first classroom he entered was empty, but the second was the needlework room, and this had a class inside. Thirteen girls were listening intently to teacher Nanette Hansen when their afternoon needlework lesson was interrupted by this stranger brandishing a gun. Nanette was born in Yorkshire and relatively new to the school, having only moved to Scotland six months before in the spring of 1967, following her marriage to her husband Guy, a carpet designer in a local factory. Even in that short time, 26-year-old Nanette had become very well liked by staff and pupils at the school. But that afternoon, Nanette was confronted with something unexpected, unbelievable and something she could never have comprehended happening. A stranger, dressed as a soldier, had walked into her classroom carrying a shotgun. The room was silent. Then after a few seconds, one of the pupils laughed, thinking that this must be somebody playing some sort of bizarre joke. But it was no joke. Moan responded to this laughter by firing a shot into a glass door, injuring another teacher who tried to intervene, and admitting years later that this gave him a feeling of power for the first time in his life. He then began to shout and to swear at the frightened and screaming girls, ordering them to use their sewing tables to barricade the door to the room. He then sat on the teacher's desk, calmly issuing his instructions. Moan took ammunition from his pockets and lined it up on the desk, telling the frightened pupils that he would blow their heads off. He then asked each person their age, and when Annette said that she was 26, Moan replied, You're just a pensioner. He then wrenched her glasses off her face and crushed them underneath his boot. When the scared pupils cried too loudly, the shotgun was placed close to their heads to silence them through fear. Ordering everyone into a small changing room annex of the classroom, a wild-eyed moan strode about, gloating that he'd come to the school to gain revenge that day for his expulsion some years before. And especially against one of the Maris brothers, who Moan believed had been one of the worst disciplinarians during his time there. Throughout all of this talk from Moan, Nanette remained calm, thinking all the time about the safety of her children. She spoke softly to him and tried to reason with him to let her pupils go and just to keep her as a hostage before anyone else was hurt. Meanwhile, the police were in action. 
Within minutes of the shot, police converged on the school, as the teacher had been injured when the glass door being blasted out had sounded the alarm. While the other thousand-plus pupils were evacuated from the school, three police officers approached the upper-floor corridor, but they were shot at by Moan, who warned that he would turn the gun on the hostages. His condition appeared to be deteriorating. Leading a 14-year-old girl to the door with the gun to her head, an increasingly aggressive Moan showed the police that he was deadly serious in his threats. Back with the girls, Moan called three of the girls out into the classroom, where he sexually assaulted two of them. The other, he also sexually assaulted, but then inexplicably released. Moan was starting to be very erratic. He then told police that the only person he would talk to was an old girlfriend, Marion Young, who he'd met four years previously at a youth club. Police quickly traced Marion, who was training to be a student nurse, and just imagine how stunned she was by what she was hearing, and she immediately agreed to negotiate with Moan. Just 75 minutes after Moan had entered the school, Marion was face to face talking to a man she now hardly recognised. Moan had acted very strangely. He'd eagerly awaited her arrival, washing his face and hair in one of the classroom sinks, and then he sat singing to himself while police brought her to the school. When she arrived, Moan's first words to her were, You thought you were being a brave little girl. How did you know that I wouldn't blow your head off? Both Marion and Annette then spent the next few minutes talking gently to Moan, trying to defuse the situation and convince him that the hostages needed to be released. At this stage, he seemed to be almost disinterested in the whole situation. He seemed almost disinterested by the situation, and seizing the opportunity, Lynette let the girl pupils out of the classroom into the corridor, and once clear, they all ran to safety. Lynette was not allowed to leave with them, however, with Moan saying, Not you, you're not going. I want you here. Moan then placed the shotgun down onto the desk, and asked for a cigarette from Nanette. When Marion attempted to pick up the shotgun, thinking that Moan was distracted, he knocked her to the floor. He then began ranting and aiming the weapon at different parts of the room, and each of his captives in turn, all the while asking, Do you think I can do it? Do you want to be a saint? Moan then instructed Nanette to ensure that all of the curtains in the room were tightly closed. He was fearful that a police sniper may have him in his sights. As Nanette shut the last curtain that remained open in the room, Moan took aim and shot her in the back from a distance of just seven feet, seemingly watching fascinated as she slowly dropped to the floor. Although not killed outright by the shot, Nanette's injuries were massive. Her spinal cord had nearly been destroyed. Despite the efforts of Marion using her nursing skills, Nanette looked very close to death. Marion pleaded with Moan to allow Nanette to be taken to hospital and Moan told her dismissively that she could just do whatever she wanted. Police outside in the corridor took the decision to allow the ambulance people in after hearing Marion call for help and they were allowed in by Moan without any conditions. Indeed, once more Moan seemed to have lost interest in the entire situation by this time. He sat quietly on the desk with the shotgun on the floor at his feet and he was either singing or laughing in a world of his own, as an unconscious Nanette was stretched out of the classroom and to the Dundee Royal Infirmary. Moan didn't even seem to notice when she was taken away, and he also offered no resistance when police burst in and handcuffed him. 
he almost didn't seem to care. The pupils who'd been held hostage were all taken to hospital for examination. Unfortunately, aside from shock and a few minor cuts and scrapes, all were otherwise physically unharmed. But sadly, they were to learn that their teacher, Nanette, who'd bravely tried to protect them all and who'd remained calm and collected throughout the siege, had died at the same hospital while they were still there. Nanette had never regained consciousness following the shooting and she had died of her grieving husband Guy at her bedside. Tragically, it was also revealed later that Nanette had been in the early stages of pregnancy when her first child, when Mona had taken her life. Mona was taken from the school to a secure facility where he spent the next couple of months being examined by psychiatrists. It was abundantly clear that Mona did not care what happened to him from that point onwards. Psychiatrists diagnosed schizophrenia that had developed over a couple of years and reported that Moan was as a result insane and unfit to plead. On the 23rd of January 1968, in a hearing that lasted just 18 minutes in total, Robert Francis Moan Jr. appeared at the High Court in Dundee and was ordered to be detained without limit of time at Carstairs Hospital by Mr Justice Lord Thompson. Moan simply smiled as he looked up and responded, good for you. The two women who had been so brave and ensured the safe release of the pupils at St John's School were commended with a Queen's Honour, with Marion Young being awarded the George Medal and Annette Hansen receiving the Albert Medal for extraordinary bravery. At a packed funeral attended by more than 300 mourners, tribute was paid to Nanette as a heroine, a martyr who died for those children. The school were determined that the actions of Nanette would never be forgotten, and still to this day, the 1st of November is marked at St John's High School with a special mass in memoriam to Nanette. Those involved in the classroom that day, on the surface, learnt to live with their memories of trauma of what happened, and pushed the name Moan to the back of their minds. Although, of course, we never know the long-term effects this would have had on so many lives in multiple ways. More than eight years were to pass before the name Robert Moan exploded into the forefront of people's minds again. There were conflicting reports of the exact deals of what happened next in his story and Moan himself paints a, as you'd expect, a completely one-sided version of what was to follow. But the most consistent account is as follows. It was the night of the 30th of November 1976 at Carstairs Hospital. Robert Moan had been here almost nine years now He looked very different to the clean-shaven, baby-faced ex-soldier who was sent there many years before. He was now 28 years old, with long, fair hair, stockily built, and where he once shunned and rejected any form of learning, he'd now settled down to studying, he'd gained three A-levels, and developed a real interest in the law. He'd started a long-distance law degree with the University of London, and he would, by his own account, spent hours poring over law books in his room at Carstairs Tweed Ward. But although he seemed to be making progress, he still felt like a loner and not a mixer. But he was involved in writing features for the Carstairs Hospital magazine, The State Observer. Moan was also involved with the hospital's drama group, a project that had been implemented by a new doctor to the ward. Under his new doctor's direction, Moan had also written a one-act play as a contribution that was celebrated by BBC Scotland's Arts Festival and had become a peer tutor, helping those struggling with their education, 
prepare for the O-levels they're about to take as part of the Carstairs education programme. By all accounts, Moan was making really strong progress, responding well to treatment, and he would soon be preparing to move towards a different, lower security facility. Reading this list, it certainly seems that this was the CV of a model patient, and a move to a lower security area would be on the cards. But Moan had an obsession with a fellow patient two years younger than him, Thomas McCulloch. McCulloch was a violent and weapon-obsessed alcoholic and drug user who'd been sent to Carstairs in 1970, following a bizarre episode where he attempted to murder two staff at a hotel he'd just eaten at. This was all in an argument over a bread roll. It sounds amusing, but it was anything but. One of his victims had to have major reconstructive facial surgery after being shot in the face, and another never worked again after receiving a gun blast to the shoulder. Following a 30-minute siege, similar to the one that Moan himself had been responsible for, McCulloch was overpowered and arrested. Found unfit to plead due to his mental state, he was sent to Carstairs for an indefinite period. Soon after meeting, McCulloch and Moan had become inseparable, and a deep friendship soon graduated to a sexual relationship. McCulloch, although the younger man, was clearly the dominant one in their relationship, and he was considered as being sly and manipulative by fellow patients and nursing staff. By 1976, the two men had a plan to escape from Carstairs underwear, and McCulloch and Moan spent six months preparing for this. The drama group was a bit of a godsend for them, because it provided them with a good cover that they needed. McCulloch, who'd been a painter and decorator before he'd been sent to Carstairs, involved himself with the drama group alongside Moan. Expressing no official interest in performing, McCulloch instead offered to use his creative skills to help with the set and the props. This gave him the cover and the time to create makeshift weapons and collect other items that would be useful for their escape. The cunning pair managed to ingeniously conceal all of the items they'd collected and fashioned behind a false wall that they'd created in the cupboard in the West Wing. By the end of November 1976, listen to this that the pair had managed to create. Two wire garrots, a hand axe, several sharp knives and a short sword. McCulloch had also managed to create a lengthy rope ladder out of sashes of cord and wooden struts and they'd stolen false beards, moustaches and items of uniform from the drama group. The pair had spent months creating forged identity cards, with McCulloch's being a faked Building Industry of Scotland Apprentice Scheme Inspector's card, with his picture, but in the name of Sean Collins, and Moan's photographic identity card showed the name Thomas Hunt. They'd also amassed a torch, two homemade nurses' hats, and £25 in cash that they'd managed to get hold of through visitors and stealing from other inmates. In a way, this was quite impressive, don't you think? What could they have done on the outside if they'd channelled this motivation in the right way? Or rather than impressive, was it actually more a massive failing by staff at the institution? Maybe it was just like today, where the staff are usually fantastic, but just let down by the authorities hugely understaffing and treating prisoners so badly. And so at 6pm on the 30th of November 1976, 
the pair were ready to make their break. And next week, we will conclude this brutal, bloody tale. It really is one, well, it's just an amazing story what happens next. But until then, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it so far. Please check out the True Crime Enthusiast at truecrimeenthusiast.wordpress.com. Get your shaving package today at harrys.com forward slash true crime. And if you'd like to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. And of course, finally, do join the Facebook group to discuss all things true crime. So until next week's show hits the back of the net. Yep, that's for you, fellow fans of The Partridge. It's cheerio from me. And remember, avoid the hate, spread the love, but most of all, Stay classy.